welcome to the Hindsight Podcast. I'm your host, Vu Tran, and today you are listening to our line of effort to The Great Game. Stories promoting a better understanding of strategy and the geostrategic ideas that shape intelligence analysis. Sun Tzu is a ubiquitous figure in Western thought, especially in relation to China. When we in the West talk about China, Sun Tzu is often brought up as a shorthand to represent a level of understanding or expertise on matters regarding the Middle Kingdom. Today we are going to challenge assumptions you might have about Sun Tzu. Our guest today is Peter Lorsch, Associate Professor of History at Vanderbilt University and non-resident fellow with the Irregular Warfare Initiative, a joint production of Princeton's Empirical Studies of Conflict Project and the Modern War Institute at West Point. Professor Lorsch's area of focus is 10th and 11th century Chinese history, and he is the author of Sun Tzu in the West, the Anglo-American Art of War. Our conversation today revolves around Sun Tzu primarily, but the discussion ended up touching on a variety of military strategic thinkers that we will be diving into in more detail in future episodes. So in retrospect, this episode ended up being, in our opinion, the best one possible to start off our great game line of effort. Please note, we had some technical issues with the audio recording itself, so the first question has been cut off, unfortunately. I had begun the interview asking Professor Lorge what the correct pronunciation of Sun Tzu is, and that is Swinza. So throughout the interview, you will hear Swinza being used instead of Sun Tzu. Throughout the episode, you'll hear us mention Mark. Mark is Professor Mark Metcalf, who is studying how the PLA interprets and uses Sunza. He will be our interview guest for the episode after this one. So with all that said, we're going to jump right into the interview. Did Sunza actually exist? And yeah. how do we know that? Uh, okay, so yeah, so Sunza, he didn't exist, and we know it because he's supposed to be a famous general, but he shows up in, he does not show up in any historical account. And he's supposed to have done all these great things and he never shows up. So, and that was known, written down, we have, we know from the 11th century, someone said he couldn't have existed. So presumably other similarly educated people would have realized the same thing, that there was no such person. And then you had mentioned earlier, when you read uh, Swinza's Art of War in the classical Chinese version, it becomes very apparent that there are multiple contributors. Yeah. Well, with the, and particularly if you look at, I think it's uh, chapter nine, the, even in, you can even see the difference in, in the translations because suddenly you get these question and reply version. Things are very different. And so when you translate, I'm, I'm actually in, in the middle of doing a, 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 a translation of Wu Qi and Wu Qi is a lot more coherent than Swinza. It doesn't, it doesn't change in manner. But the other thing you should look at is if you were thinking that something was written down, you're, you're not paying attention to the text because the text doesn't say, it's not a guy saying you should do this. It says master Swin said. So what this is, is at, this is someone saying, here's something I heard. This guy said it. And in fact, my late classical Chinese teacher used to say that that designation of zi, which is to say master, didn't just mean master, it meant our master. So it means, which is to say, Swinza Yue. So it would be, that would mean our master Swin said, which means you are a disciple of that school. Other people wouldn't call him that. But since there was no guy, or if there was a Swin, there is a, there is a, it's a, it really is a school of thought that is, the Swinza is a, summary of knowledge from before and then it's attributed to this figure who is then 
the one giving you these summaries. But it does not appear that there was one guy who summed it all up. You know, it's it's and then if this is all transmitted and a lot of the transmission would have been oral. So is this um, similar to how like something like Taoism or Lao Tzu would have been transmitted? So it would have been several masters. They'd walk around, they'd pick up students and then they would kind of tell them what Sun Tzu said. And then the master and the student have a, an actual dialogue. And that's how they would actually pass on teachings of the Sun Tzu to the next generation. Or was it written down? a lot sooner and that was the primary transmission. If you well if you look at the Tao Te Ching for example, we actually have variations of it in versions that we have and we uh, that are much more significant than the variations we have of Swinza. So now it's of course possible and, and even likely that Swinza was a much more narrow it's much more specialized knowledge than the Taoist knowledge. And Taoism uh, early Taoism is a very interesting problem. Actually, Taoism in general as much as it's very popular in the West, it has gotten a lot less scholarship than, say, Buddhism and uh, Ruism, Confucianism. So, yeah, you have a master, keeping in mind that you don't really get printing until the 11th century. So any text that you have is, is going to be anything that we have is handwritten. And things that are handwritten are usually, at least initially, they are writing down things that would have been memorized. Or maybe what happened was someone had a copy and then you got to look at it. But, you know, you don't have – people didn't have libraries of thousands of books. So most stuff would have been oral and these guys would have been very good at memorizing stuff. That terrible thing which we're now supposed to not make our students do so they know nothing. <laughs> so uh, in the development of our modern understanding of Swinza, who's Sima Qian? What role did, did he play in the development of all this? Okay, so Sima Qian is a key figure in Chinese culture, key figure in understanding Chinese culture. He establishes all of these categories of thought that stick with us for the rest of time and make it almost you, – you can't escape Sima Qian. When I teach general history classes, you keep coming back to him because he establishes so many of the norms. And he's the one – but he's, also, he's the one who creates this biography of, of Suenza – and which is, you know, fabrication. He establishes the categories of the Taoists and the Ru and the, the Ru, the Confucians. He establishes the category of the militarist, the Bingjia. So you can't uh, escape him. He's a an interesting figure in that he was his father started the book, and then he and it was a hereditary position. The essentially it's astrologer, but you also wrote down the records. He ends up on the wrong side of. He ends up uh, uh, supporting a general who was who people say this guy surrendered to the Xiongnu, and he didn't even know the guy well. And he said, "No, I don't think he would have." And th there's a lot of politics behind this, and and basically he ends up on the wrong side of it, and he's sentenced to be castrated. And he is faced with the choice of finishing the being castrated and then finishing the book, or committing suicide, which was what was generally expected. The other thing you could have done is if you had money, you could buy off the penalty, but he didn't have the money. So he makes the extraordinary decision to be castrated so that he can finish the book. So that's always, as I say to students, a real dedication to history that I don't possess. And we know about this because he actually writes a letter about it, which comes, uh, which is transmitted. And he does it because he, he if he had not if he committed suicide, then he would have disappeared and his father's book wouldn't have been done and no one would have known him. And by 
going through this terrible thing and finishing the book, he becomes, he's going to be known. And it, it works in that sense. He, he is known until today and you can't escape him. And we still read his book. Uh, that's also for those of you who think history books go out of style. It's a you know 2000 year old book that we're still reading. And in fact, his writing style becomes a, an example of good writing. So yes, you, you can't, a lot of the stuff that we know about early China is through Sima Qian, and we just don't know stuff without him. And a lot of like the anecdotal stories associated yeah. with Swinza, like the concubines and the king yeah. Lu of Wu, were those all made up? And were those stories meant to convey a, a political point or a lesson? And then it just got tacked on to Swinza for credibility purposes? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, it's kind of that never let the truth get in the way of a good story. There are these stories from early times and we ask the question, is this true? Did it happen? And in a lot of cases, you know, did this happen? Almost certainly not. What was going on? Well, someone thought it was a good story. So, uh, you know, I was in, when I was in Taiwan at one point, a guy I knew was, he was telling a story to someone and it was actually about another, a different, some other foreigner that he knew. But because I was there, he said, I did it because it made the story better. And he winked at me like, you know, he knew, he knew that I, you know, he winked at me to go along with him while he was saying, yeah, you know, he did this thing because it was made the story better. Uh, and, and that was, you know, so you tell a story because it illustrates your point. And did it happen? Well, no, but it's a great story. You know, so what's the function of these anecdotes? It's, it's almost like when people learn lessons from watching movies uh, or watching uh, or reading a book and uh, you read fiction or you watch fiction and, and that's the story that me has meaning for you that has emotional resonance and it encapsulates a certain wisdom. And so that's what you remember, not some event where someone's going, well, we're not really sure what happened. So yeah. And anytime you see a really clean story like that, yeah, it's almost certainly been modified for better readability, you know. And then earlier before the recording kicked in, you had said 1083 was a, a major year for Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And that was because it was no longer illegal to possess it as a personal book. As far as I, I'm, I'm assuming that's the case because I have never found, so before 1083, certainly, owning military texts was illegal. In the, in the Song dynasty. The set of books which will become known as the seven military classics a couple of centuries later are handed into the throne and the emperor says, okay, cool, this is it. This is the, the curriculum for the military academies and military exams. At that point, presumably, the texts are no longer prohibited. Ownership of the text is no longer prohibited. But I've never found a document that says, okay, you know, that thing that was prohibited before is no longer prohibited. So, but presumably, because after that, we do know that uh, there is a military academy set up. There, there was before, but it was set up and then it was ended and then it was set up and then it was all kinds of debates. But certainly in the 12th century, there is a military school in the capital and they were reading these texts. So presume at that point, they were definitely not illegal texts. So before 1083-ish, you know, if you had talked about Sun Tzu, and the art of war, was that kind of uh, an oddity for you? And then after 1083, it was more normalized to critique it and discuss it? Yeah. So here's what's really weird about it is in the middle of the 11th century, they are trying to create a military education system and a military exam system. The physical part of it is established pretty quickly, you know, certain archery and horse riding and things like that. Which text should be read is 
constantly being argued about. So it, it's about 50 years of arguing about which text should be read. And then there is this problem. What, what, what should we, how do we test this stuff? How do we, how do we follow this? You know? And so, yeah, there, there's a, there's a, a, a process of creating it and making it standard and, and, and part of a curriculum and trying to, there's also, by the way, there's a whole cultural aspect where there's a martial temple. And so there's a civil temple and a martial temple and they face each other uh, in front of the imperial city. And the civil temple, we all know who is in that. It's Confucius at the top and his 72 disciples. Very simple. The martial temple, it's not clear. So the guy at the head of it is initially this guy, Chi Taigong. He's one of the writers of what will become one of the seven military classics. But who are the 72 military exemplars in Chinese history? Oh, so there's a, in the 10th century, one of the emperors goes into the temple and says, oh, these guys aren't exemplars. He says, and actually one of them is uh, Guan Yu, who will become Guan Di. For those of you who you know, know anything about Chinese culture, Guan Di is the, he's the great, he becomes the god of war in the Qing dynasty. He gets kicked out of the temple as being not an example of, great, of being a great general. And so then they have these debates about who is a martial exemplar. And that changes over time. And by the way, all, all militaries have this. If you go to any, uh, you know, military facility, you will see, you know, here are all the great army generals and here are all the great Marine Corps generals. And of course, you know, when you go to the Marine Corps, you're supposed to see uh, uh, John Boyd, who's actually an Air Force guy. It's a little weird, you know, and, and everybody has this. You go, to, you go to any country in Europe, you go to China now, who are the great people? So there's a whole cultural thing that's going on here and that's struggling to come out. And we're just looking at the texts. So earlier we had uh, discussed, you know, whether or not the Sun Tzu Art of War text itself was compiled by people with actual military experience or bureaucrats. And you have brought up the work of, I think it was Jonathan Sullivan. Yeah. Um, could you just go over that real, real quick for us, what that work kind of indicates as far as how the actual text itself has evolved? Yeah. So, and, and like I said, all, all credit to John, because his stuff is really groundbreaking. Uh, what he went, did in, is, is showed that if you look in the Swinza, there are some, there are a lot of passages where they seem very specific in terms of, you know, if you do this, the three generals will be captured. And he goes and he shows how, if you go back into a text like Zuo Zhuan, which is a hideously complicated text, and John has these like Excel spreadsheets with all the battles and everything, you will find that that passage refers to a specific event in which these guys took certain military action, they got this result and all the generals got captured. So the Swinza is therefore, uh, I think you put it as a, an after action report. It's a sort of summation of lessons learned and it's tied to actual events. It's not, a, it's not some guy sitting in his office sort of proposing strategic wisdom off the top of his head. And uh, I think I, I also wanted to bring up that, you know, people tend to not appreciate how much someone like Clausewitz was actually in war. And, and it's, it's remarkable because I, I remember when I was first learning about learning Clausewitz a long, long time ago, and it was sort of a sense that he wasn't an actual, you know, general in combat. And then you realize, no, no, of course he was, you know, and he's, he's, uh, at, uh, you know, the battle he's at, uh, what is it, Quattro Bras before Waterloo. I mean, he's at he, Borodino too. 25 yeah, battles. He's, yeah, he's at Borodino. I mean, he's wearing a Russian uniform and he's, you know, he's he's actually, and he, you know, there is this mention he talks about when they're going into France and he's, you know, talking about killing a Frenchman 
with his sword. And so th this is a guy who had grown up in the military. He went through the major, some of the most important battles of his time. He was, you know, commandant of the military academy. He was, you know, he, and and somehow we had this idea that because he writes in his very intellectual style, that he's, you know, he wasn't really an experienced guy. And of course he was. And that's important because when he's talking about stuff, he does have an immense amount of pragmatic knowledge, immense amount of, of you know, when he talks about friction, he's not, this is not in the, like I talk about it, it's abstract. When he talked about it, he'd seen it. But yeah, so these, it, it seems like this is knowledge that is a summation. Uh, you know, the Swinza itself is a, a summary, a short summary. And that's one of the reasons why people are willing to read it because it's short. As a, and, and he doesn't, you know, Clausewitz is Prussian, so that's why he writes the way he does. But I will tell you that I, when I was younger and I read Clausewitz, I thought he was very difficult and turgid. And now I read him and I find him extremely fluid and, and, and just it makes a lot more sense. So that's just an age thing. Yeah, if we look at Sunza as an after-action report, right? In the Army, we do after-action reports as issue, discussion, and recommendation. So yeah. Sunza's Art of War seems like it's just the recommendation piece, yeah. and then the discussion, the issue have been stripped out. Is that partly why there are so many commentaries on Sunza throughout the century, Ooh. where people are trying to read back into the, like what the implied tasks were what that came that comes with that recommendation from Sun Tzu or what maybe the, the issue and discussion piece that's not in the, the text is. Okay, so let me see if I can do this in a short fashion. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing a piece for a, a book on how Chinese strategy in the imperial era changes. Uh, so the strategies you use for establishing a dynasty are different than the strategies used for maintaining a dynasty and are different from the strategies you use when things are going down. So you have this text, this Swinza, which everybody agrees, for good reason, is the core text. The problem is it's written in the Warring States period, where you do not have a central government that has temporal authority over all of the territory. Well, you get to Imperial China. Now you have a government, a single government that controls all of the all of Chinese territory. That's a bit of a simplification, but we'll go with that. Well, you have this text. What do you do with this text? Because you have a strategy that's written for a different milieu. So you can either discard the text. Yeah, this is not practical, right? Because, and, and what I would say to you is that the Swinza is a, a limited war text. So it, it, there's, if you read Swinza carefully, you will see there is no expectation that you will destroy an enemy state. You can raid it, you can get something from it, you can get advantage from it, but, but you're never planning to destroy the enemy state completely. You're never planning to, I'm going to, how do you destroy everybody and take over the whole place? That's just not in the text. Well, what happens when you have a limited war text and now you decide you're going to unify everything? Well, you have two options. You discard the text or you reinterpret it. Because of the way things work in Chinese culture, in this case, people decide that it's a classic and they're going to reinterpret it. So then you have this reinterpretation process and it accretes all of these commentaries, if you look at the commentaries, you will see they don't agree with each other. You will also see there are different kinds of commentary. So some commentary is just explaining, uh, you know, back then a Jun was 12,500 men. Like you wouldn't know that, but I'm telling you, by the way, that's, then you have ones where they 
try to explain the passage. And then there are ones where they give you a story, a historical example to illustrate the passage. Well, then someone else will come along and give a different historical example to illustrate the passage differently. So to go back to your analogy, you know, you have the recommendations. Well, you will all classically know that the, the general in charge is very busy and they just want the executive summary, right? Do they read the actual? Th no, they don't read the text. They're like, okay, so, you know, what? why they're very busy. Well, that's what naturally happens. Everybody has way too much to do. So we don't have the bandwidth or even the time, even if we had the energy to read all these things. So we're dependent upon these summations. And hopefully the summations are right. Hopefully the recommendations are correct. So yes, you have a great text. So then someone writes, uh, so what does a scholar do? Because if this is not being read by, and as far as we can tell, it does not appear that actual soldiers are reading Swinson. We have no evidence. There's only a couple of guys that we know who might have read it. So who's reading it? Essentially military bureaucrats. And you're saying, well, wait, wait. So like some guy in the DOD, a civilian, is writing a military document. So they, they're reading this and they're writing a military document. The soldier isn't necessarily ever seeing that. Now, the, the great, the first commentator who, who's really important for us, uh, Cao Cao, is a civil official. He writes a commentary on the Swinson. After he does that, he then goes on to a military career. And no one has yet, I was supposed to do this project with a, a former student of mine who's in China, uh, has actually tried to match what he said in his commentary on the Swinza with what he did on the battlefield. But all the other guys, as far as we know, who've written commentaries in pre-modern times, before the 20th century, were all at most military officials, not officers. In the 20th century, you actually start getting officers writing and they're doing it to try to make themselves look educated. You know, ah, I've read this. Uh, and then we won't get into the question of Mao because that's a whole other lengthy, lengthy issue. Uh, so yeah, that this this was it was educated guys and not soldiers who were really dealing with these texts. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned that the Art of War Sun Tzu's version is really a limited war, and just for our audience, is that just a byproduct of the feudal nature of warfare during the spring and autumn period and into the maybe the first two thirds of the Warring States period before the rise of the Qin, um, where there's just so many different competitors. If you went all out, you would be too weak to deal with a new competitor emerging out of nowhere. Is that kind of? Yeah. I mean, so, there, so there's two aspects. One is the material aspects, which is, you know, so yeah, it's a time and place in which it may in fact be impossible to completely defeat the enemy. And then the second aspect, and so that, so that's this text is coming out of those out of the circumstances it was in. And then the second aspect, of course, is simply ideological. So there's a mental space where you don't even think you can do it. Like you, it's not on your list of like things to do. So you're not sitting there thinking if you're in Chu, you're not thinking I'm going to go, you know, destroy Chin or or Han because you're not because that's the system is you know, and 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 one could argue today. There are, you know, most states in our world today are not imagining to destroy, you know, Russia is not planning to destroy America. Uh, China is not planning to destroy America. America is not planning to destroy those states. I'm not saying you can't end up in a huge war, but, but it's not, it's not on the, it's not in the mental wheelhouse. Yes, Russia was ready to destroy Ukraine. Uh, yes, China 
is would be very happy to capture Taiwan. And of course, if you're Taiwan, it's an unlimited war, right? It's it's a it's a total war. And if you're the United States, it's a limited war. Even if China attacks Taiwan and we come to their aid, from our perspective, if we were defending Taiwan, we wouldn't be defending Taiwan. We wouldn't be trying to destroy China to defend Taiwan. Uh, now the Chinese might look at it and say that's unlimited, that's total war. Because if you defeat us uh, or you prevent us from taking over Taiwan, so th- those are the sort of issues. But yeah, it, it, it's in its time period and it's in orientation. And in the latter part of the Warring States period, there is some kind of intellectual shift. And I don't know whether. It's when you get this consolidation into seven states, seven large states, that, and the Joe King is no longer, hasn't been a factor for so long, whether the legalist ideas, and remember that we, we tend to stress that legalism was important in the Chin, but archaeological finds of the laws of other states show that they were doing the, almost the same thing. So there's a shift, and what I would argue is that war creates the Chinese state. And it creates leads to the creation of the imperial Chinese state. And so is it that they change their minds? And remember, of course, in a competitive situation, when one guy starts doing something differently, the other guys all have to respond. Uh, you know, is it the idea ideology causes them to change practice, or practice causes them to change ideology, or they feed off of each other? That that sorting where that started is unclear. And so, yeah, then you have this text that comes emerges from that environment which is increasingly not in sync with what's going on on the battlefield, at least at the higher political level. Maybe it's valuable in terms of operations, but strategically it's becoming less important because strategically we're now talking about, no, I'm gonna destroy that other state. And I'm I'm gonna destroy that state, I'm gonna take their resources, I'm gonna go on and go after the next state, as opposed to, you know, I'm gonna take the couple of border towns Yay, I won, go back, get some, you know, accolades, and then I'm a good ruler. So it's interesting you brought you brought that up because I was reading through the Chin Wars of Reunification uh and preparing for this interview. And it just read like they took Sun Tzu's The Art of War and then they just threw all the chapters out and did their own thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, during this period, was Sun Tzu's school of military thought the only one, or were there additional Ooh. schools of thought during this period that would be worth discussing? If there are, we don't know about them. So this is the only one that survived, even though. Yeah, to the extent that it's to the extent that we know about it, we we don't and we don't even officially know that there was like a place. So we have this text, which is, you know, a compilation. It's a it's a tradition. And we don't know. We so we don't have we don't have any mention of military schools, military academies. Which is why I, I started looking at the, the creation of the military academies and the military exams in the Sung, because from a modern perspective, and of course the Sung is very modern, you you can understand it, but you look back and say, so third century BCE, you're a member of the Shur class, you're a young man. Presumably you are trained in, you know, you're trained in archery, you're trained in chariot riding, you're trained in some math, because math is a logistics skill and reading and writing, deportment, and uh, I'm trying to remember what the other ones are, I think music. But uh, so you're, but you're, tra- you're trained to be a, a, a gentleman. And as a gentleman, you need to know how to fight, you know, archery. You need to be able to drive a, you know, chariot. 
So archery and chariot riding is gets you to war, but it also gets you through hunting. And there are all kinds of things tied into archery. Archery is a really, really big and important skill. And uh, who taught you? You know, were you sent, you know, the European thing was you get sent to a relative's place to hang out at court at, with that guy. So you learn something, see the rest of your family. But we don't know any of that. We have So we really have no information on how anyone learned how to do, you know, how, how to fight. We don't, we don't really know, you know, how did you learn how to fight? Who taught you archery? Who taught you these texts? No knowledge of it. But it, so presumably there were a lot of places learning it. And, you know, like any military skill, right? There were people who learned it and didn't take it that seriously and still went to the battlefield. And, you know, there are people on the battlefield who are good at what they do and people who are bad on the battlefield who are bad at what they do. But yeah, we have no idea. I, I wish. Oh, that would be so cool. So on kind of the art of war itself, right? Yeah. So when I read it, Bing Pa to me sounds like um, military method or maybe yeah. like a, more of a guidebook. So how did it actually get translated into the art of war? Is that a, like a, is that an accurate translation or is there a quirk in history that we tend to view it as the art of war in the West? And does someone like the PLA, do they look at it more like a military manual from way back in the day? Ooh, so so lots of good questions there. Let me see if I can break that down. Because so trying to understand what the PLA's perspective, I'm gonna set that aside because that's that's a very specific thing that I, I I don't have the I can't tell you how they understand it at that nuanced a level. Maybe Mark can when you talk to him. Um we translate as the art of war. I think primarily, so yes, it should be military methods and Victor Mayer. Uh, if you look at his, Victor has his translation and he has like subtitled like military methods. And what he found out was that in the West, it has been established it's Swinza's art of war, Sun Tzu's art of war, you know. And so you can't sell the book as, you know, Swinza's military methods. So the best you can do is like put it as a subtitle. So it, it's fixed. It's it's so you can't change that. Um, the translation ends up fitting into the Western tradition. So there are all of these books in the Western tradition, Art de la Guerre. And so what happens is when you're the translators make this choice, and it would be Giles or um, you know, Calthrop doesn't. I can't remember whether Calthrop calls it that. Uh, he's the first, Calthrop's the first one, uh, and he's translating via the Japanese. So he has it as Sonchiheho. And um, so basically, Swinza is fit into the um, pre existing Western tradition. Father Amio does that in 1772. I'm actually, I'm actually giving a paper next year on how Swinza becomes an enlightened, uh, a European enlightenment thinker. So for those of you, and of course I, I should say, no, I understand that all the army officers listening here know, are, have completely read Azur Gatt's books on, and so they understand completely how the, the course of Western uh, or military thinking, and, and you have to stop laughing when I say that, it ruins it. But, uh, and so everybody understands this, this shift from the enlightenment thinkers that you know culminate in someone like Jomini, versus Clausewitz as a German romantic, if you can ever come up with a more terrifying 
uh, juxtaposition of words German Romantic, but a, 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 an anti-enlightened, a counter-enlightenment thinker like Clausewitz, who is writing against people like Jomini, well, you have these enlightenment military writers and that tradition in the art of war, which Swinza's translation, uh, the translation of Swinza into French by Father Amio is slotted into that. So Swinza becomes an enlightenment thinker because he is fit in. Those are the guys who are interested in hearing about China. And so they get uh, this translation sent by this Jesuit, Father Amio, and it goes to France and it's published and it becomes this art of war. So it's a quirk of history in that sense. And I don't want to ruin it too much for you by telling you that uh, uh, Vanya Bellinger is actually shown in, again, in this conference that we have that hopefully that book will come out when I'm getting the proposal in right now, where she shows that Clausewitz almost certainly had read the uh, French translation of Swinza. So it, it's, it's basically impossible that he didn't. So that was the, one of the great mysteries that that we haven't been able to solve for the longest time. So Vanya being very smart came along and just, you know, pretty much laid it out, solved that for us. So yeah, uh, but that's why it's called the art of war. And it, cause it fits into a tradition of writing about war, uh, which nowadays, like you wouldn't write a new book and call it the art of war. People would think that it's very sort of archaic. Yeah, no, this is certainly very interesting because if I think military methods, then that yeah. to me is a tactical or maybe an operational level text. And I would yeah. read it through that lens versus you tell me something's the art of war and I'm going to put my strategy or grand strategy glasses on and I'm going to read it uh, very differently. In your book, you also listed other arts of war. So books like Wu Qi's Art of War, Juga Liang's, and Master yeah. Mu Rong's. Are these like in a similar vein to Sunzi's Art of War? Or are they talking about completely different things or echoing the same sort of themes and recommendations? These texts almost seem to float around separated from each other. There are echoes. There are there are lines in Wu Qi, for example. And Wu Qi has a lot of lines. If you if you're if once you start reading the text, you see the connections with the other texts. What is not clear is whether we, so we don't have any record of some guy saying, you know, I read this, I read that, I read that. We do have some books that discuss them as a whole, but we don't tend to have this kind of, uh, not quite the same kind of lineage of texts that we have uh, in the West because, again, just history is different that way. Wu Qi was very important. So Swinza and Wu Zi, Master Swin, Master Wu, are very much understood to be, these are the baseline, these are the two core texts. The other texts there are arguments about. And like I said, in the 11th century, there's this long argument, it goes on for about 50 years. Which text should we include? Which commentaries on Swinza should we include? And it isn't obvious. And they're having this argument, the emperor is taking part. Various emperors are actually weighing in. So they're educated. So they're all, they're all looking at these texts going, you know, that's actually not a really good text, you know, like the Samatha or something like that. Or, and for later people, they're like, well, what do you mean that was? Because later these texts get chosen, they get imperially legitimized. Great. But before that, there are serious debates and people have strong opinions and it's, it, there isn't a firm tradition before, let's say, 1083 as to what the core texts are. Beyond knowing that Swinza is key and Wudza is also important. 
All the other texts, eh, not so clear. After 1083, they're sort of legitimized, uh, which is why when you, if you look at Ralph Sawyer's translation, he says, you know, the seven military classics of ancient China, and there's a certain argument that could be made that they're really not of ancient China in the sense that there was no corpus. There was no seven military classics before 1083. And as, as I mentioned before, it's not even called that in the uh, 12th century. They, I think a couple of guys call it like the seven books, the seven military books. It's really, I think it's Ming where they start calling it the seven military classics. So in your book, you talk about common assumptions that occur when, you know, authors or translators in the West attempt to translate Sunzi for a Western audience. Can you go into what these these assumptions were? Okay. So yeah. So the 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 biggest issue for me, which I, I know I will be fighting this battle to the end of my career, and hopefully my books will fight it afterward, is this notion that China is a non-military, I mean non-military, non-aggressive culture, which has always been nonsense. Credit to Westerners who are listening to the Chinese government now. And the Chinese government now says, Chinese has never been an aggressive power. And, you know, of course, excuse me, we're just taking this, you know, but we're not being aggressive about it. We're just going to take control of it. And if you resist us, you're somehow weird. Like, this is ours. We're not aggressively taking it. It's, It's ours. You know, we don't, we've never been aggressive, you know, and, and so there is this notion that China is not military, is not martial. And a lot of that is a historical happenstance, which is to say Europeans in the 19th century start going, uh, they hit China at a, a very bad time and it's a declining power and they've had a lot of issues and, and, and they say, well, these guys actually turn out not to be very strong and it must just be because they're Chinese and Earlier Jesuits who went to China weren't thinking China was non non martial. They were actually quite impressed. The 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 Chinese government would like to argue the current Chinese government, but also previous Chinese governments would also say imperial governments say, oh, we're all about peace. Well, like I said, peace is a strange thing. Earlier Chinese governments would say, in the Chinese concept, if you are doing a good job ruling, all people want to come to you. In the Confucian concept, a great ruler, people would be attracted. To that ruler, and you wouldn't need to go out and fight them. And in fact, now, of course, it's a little bit deceptive there, because what uh, is said in, in the Confucian sense is that those far countries would be questioning, why are you not sending your armies to us? You know, what have we done wrong that you aren't coming to, to capture us? Because if you showed up, we'll just get, we, we want you to take us over. That's a great idea. What was actually happening? Well, you, that's not what happened in Chinese history. People did not just give up. People fought tooth and nail. The uh, the notion that China is a unified state is is political ideology. It's not Chinese people don't wake up, you know, are not born and think, you know, we should all be unified. It, it's not this is not some perverse thing. They, they, you know, if you look at if the history, people fight. They want they fight for autonomy. They fight for power. They kill lots of people. So China has this incredible record of wars, which we don't study in the West. I mean, I, I almost know personally almost every single person who writes about this in English. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, you couldn't say that about World War II. You couldn't say that about the American Civil War. Uh, whereas the number of people who write about Chinese wars is very small in the West. It's not that big in China either. 
So what you have is a historiographical artifact, which is that military history isn't studied. War, military history matters. We don't teach it enough in general. We don't teach it, and we certainly don't have enough of it for Chinese history. If you understand Chinese military history, you would never say that the Chinese were non-military. No Chinese dynasty was created without massive wars, hundreds of thousands of people dead. Never, never happened. And so, yeah, uh, otherwise you have silly characterizations like the Chinese are not military. And then what do you do? So someone says, well, I read Swinza. And in Swinza, he's avoiding battle. It's like, he's not avoiding battle. He's t- he's, he assumes that you're already in a war. So what he's saying is, you're in a war. Don't be rushing into battle. Not, you'll never fight. So Swinza is saying, yeah, as you said, it's, it's not, is it a strategic text? I think it is much more, it's operational. But if I give you a really sophisticated background analysis and say there's an assumed strategic understanding, like I said, it's a, a, limited, a limited war text. Their strategies are, I'm trying to get an advantage in a system, but I'm not trying to overthrow the system. I'm maintaining status quo, but I'm trying to get advantage within the status quo. That's a strategic framework. And then, okay, set that aside. That's over, right? And it's kind of like, you know, you go, you go play tennis with someone. It's assumed that you're trying to win. You know, and, and then we're talking about how you're going to win. And say, so, well, actually, you know, you got a lousy backhand. Well, don't, don't try not to get in the position where you're using your backhand, right? Uh, is that – now, that's – is that operational art? You know, he's making points. And then, of course, if you're a smart strategist and you read the thing where he says, look, wars are costly, is that a strategic consideration or an operational consideration? Well, it's both, right? Uh, you know, I, I always say to students, look, wars always cost more and yield less than you want. Yeah. The notion that China is not military and not martial is is deep. It's wrong. And I suspect I will not succeed in dissuading too many people uh, uh, or persuading them that it's wrong or dissuading them from that view. Don't worry, Peter. Beijing's got most of that workload for you already taken care of. <laughs> they have been so much better at U.S. diplomacy than the State Department. <laughs> they have convinced more states to come over to our side than than we've ever convinced. Oh, uh, which is hilarious if you thought they were reading, you know, Swinza because. <laughs> well, and that's, I guess that's the point. I think you're absolutely right there because they should be being nice to all of these smaller states to convince them to come over. And they go in there and their diplomats are doing this wolf warrior diplomacy, as they call it. And that's where you realize that they're an internally focused state. That diplomacy is not about external diplomacy. That's about pleasing internal groups. So they go to these places and they piss everyone off. And America, who is not known for not being arrogant, you know, <laughs> looks good by comparison. You know, these Americans show up and they're just kind of mildly arrogant. And, and suddenly we're like, people are like, hey, yeah, could you come by? Like, really? Us? Okay. Yeah, no, it, it's their diplomacy is very clumsy. It is, it is not effective. Taylor Fravel has a new article, uh, I think in foreign policy or something like that, that just came out when he's talking about this issue of the economics. You know, does a declining Chinese economy make them more likely to attack or not? And, you know, we have to understand modern China on modern China's terms. They are affected by these earlier texts, these earlier traditions, but that's not everything. You know, it'd be like saying like, uh, you know, how many 
how many Westerners have read Aristotle and Plato? And you say, well, they're affected by it. Well, yes. Um, are they guided by that? Do they guide you on a day-to-day basis, which is what we need to know, right? In, in a military context with China, we don't want to know necessarily like that vague stuff behind it. We want to know what are they going to do? Well, this is actually a very interesting point. Um, you had a part in your book where you talked about how Mao didn't really read Swinza as far as we can tell until he had already achieved, you know, rolling success against the nationalists. So yeah. it seemed like he retconned the, yeah. t- the history books that he actually read Swinza and that's kind of forming the basis for his on guerrilla warfare. But it also talks about how we do know that Mao did read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is yep. a fictional uh, account of the Three Kingdoms period in Chinese history. So when we talk about Sunzi's influence within the, kind of the Chinese psyche or the psyche of Chinese decision makers, is it is that where the real influence is at? It's that the lessons within Sunzi kind of make their way into other cultural texts that might actually be read versus the original text of Swinza itself. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a uh, you know you have these novels that are created in the 16th century, the the Romance of Three Kingdoms, the Outlaws of the Marsh, so you know Sangguoyi and uh, the um, Shui Huzhuan, and there that's where you get most most Chinese people get most of their military strategy and stuff from that. And they're great stories. They're massive novels, absolutely huge. But even for Chinese people, they have to put little cartouches next to people explaining who they are because there's so many characters and and, and it's just kind of a, who is this guy? Um, so yeah, you have this, Mao picks up, you know, and Mao is a very complicated figure. Uh, he's a very smart guy. He's very politically canny. His education is very hit or miss. He was not very well educated. He had kind of, he'd gotten bits and pieces if you read Mao's military thought, he doesn't really talk in in terms of uh, Swinza terms. He talks in Western terms. So he talks about war of annihilation, war of attrition, conventional war. He's, and in fact, so when you go through it, what you find out is Mao is actually a Western. His influences are Western military thinking. You know, on guerrilla warfare, again, we, again, we get back to... Um, Samuel Griffith. So Griffith is the person who first translates on guerrilla warfare for the Marine Corps Gazette when it comes out, uh, shortly after it came out. I'm trying to remember whether that was 30s, 40s, early 40s. So he produces that for the Marine Corps Gazette and later is asked to, they reissue it. It's also translated by the foreign languages, the Chinese retranslate as well. If you read Mao seriously, without precon- without some preconceived notion that he must be some weird Chinese guy and that he's read Swinza. He reads like a Western uh, uh, writer. And there is a section where he talks about, he does mention Swinza and he mentions some historical Chinese events. It's very peripheral. He wants to appear to be an educated Chinese guy. So he makes classical references, like I said, it's only in one section, because he's trying to appear to be an educa- educated in his own culture. He's not very well educated in his own culture. Uh, most of his understanding of things is from pragmatic, you know, he was running a guerrilla band. And then a lot of his writing about warfare and guerrilla warfare is not actually what happens in the Civil War. Uh, if you read Harold Tanner's books, uh, Harold very conclusively shows, and also read Chris Liu, that first of all, Mao is not necessarily really guiding the campaigns in Manchuria. 
And then really the critical person there is Lin Biao. And this is not indirect warfare. This is not guerrilla warfare. This is conventional warfare. And Mao is also very clear in his writings that you don't, your war is going to be won by conventional forces. It's going to be a conventional war. That's how it's won. One of the reasons you have guerrillas is to build up a, a, a training pool of people who can be transitioned into conventional warfare. And then you really want to go to mobile warfare. You don't want positional warfare. I mean, you might have to do positional warfare, but you don't really want to do that. And you, so you would read it now and say, well, this is Western. And so this notion that Mao is like this guy who's like doing, it's all about guerrillas. And, and so, and I don't know what's going on in the U.S. military now, but for a long time, if I talked to anyone from U.S. military, they were always like, oh, the communists won with guerrilla warfare. That's not how they won the civil war. It was conventional warfare became mobile warfare. That's how they defeated the nationalists. But this concept got in the minds of people that the communists defeated the nationalists who were trained by the Americans with guerrilla warfare. That's not what happened at all. And then, of course, we get to Korea. And the Chinese weren't, it wasn't guerrilla warfare against the US, UN forces in Korea. It was conventional. And so all these people are like, oh, we got Mao, you know, we're reading Mao. And it's like, what are you reading Mao about? Uh, you know, the, it's conventional. It's not Chinese. If Mao made a major contribution in real intellectual terms, it's his thing on uh, attrition. He's one of the only people who really does argue for attrition. Very few strategists will talk about like, yeah, we should use attritional warfare. Everyone's like, attrition sucks. You know, you do attrition when you, I mean, it sucks, right? You don't want to just be sitting there like grinding away at people. And Mao's kind of like, yeah, let's, let's do attrition because China is a large, weak country. But that's taking advantage of what you have. You know, that's not necessarily they want to, the way they want to fight. So how will the PLA fight now? They've got a very mixed intellectual tradition. Uh, and then the other problem is no one's fighting in China. They're going to be fighting in, in the ocean. Well, now, you okay, name for me a great and important uh, ancient Chinese naval theorist. No one. There are no Chinese naval theorists in, in pre-modern times. Uh, Air Force power. Where are they going to get this stuff from? So... We need to look at what they're doing now, but no, I mean, they don't, Mao is, Mao is a Western writer. It's, it's all there. I mean, it, it's not even, it's not even unclear. You know, this is a great segue to this next question, which is, you know, our conversation thus far has been focused on how the West misreads Sun Tzu. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask a, a two-part question in reverse. So part one is, who do CCP leaders and PLA officers read from the West? So working off of what you just said about Mao and him being ultimately a Western writer. And then part two is, do they face the same challenges that we do understanding Western military and strategic writers? So for example, like issues of translation or misconceptions due to not understanding the cultural uh, context in which the text was written. So I would imagine for an English speaker, reading Clausewitz is, can be very tough. I can only imagine how much tougher it is for a Mandarin speaker reading what's probably like a, either an English translation of Clausewitz, or if they're lucky, they'll have a direct translation, I guess, from the original German. My presumption is that the Chinese have an extremely poor understanding of how we think of things, but that they think they have a good understanding of us. The only thing I think that we're maybe ahead on is I certainly, and maybe, I don't know, you, you're in the army, you tell me, but I think that we are pretty clear that we don't understand them. 
I wrote a paper a long time ago for the Navy, uh, the Naval, the McMullen thing uh, on Chinese naval strategy, in which I said, you know, the problem for the Chinese is they don't have any naval strategists, so they have to choose Western strategists. Yeah. So that would be like Alfred there, Mahan and Corbett, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they're all into Mahan, right? And the reason why they're into Mahan is the same reason the Prussians were into Mahan. The same reason the Japanese then were into Mahan is because if you're in the Navy, you want to build big ships. You want to be going out and and you want a blue sea navy. You don't want coastal defense. You don't just want small ships. You want big ships. And you say, well, what do you need big ships for? So what do you do? You choose the strategist who tells you what you want to hear. You know, you 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 don't choose Corbett because Corbett's going to tell you something you don't want to hear. So you choose Mayhem. There should be, we should really be focused on what they are being taught, but also what they're not talking about. So when you read, uh, there's this Chinese encyclopedia, I have like the whole thing over there, military encyclopedia. There are battles and writers in there covering the West that I've never heard of. I mean, and I teach Western military history too. So I was kind of looking at like, who the hell is that? And so they've got scholars working for the Chinese military who know Western history, who are called upon to write things. So when they construct a reality based on which battles they're focused on, that's what they're, that, that's how you know what they're thinking toward. Uh, you know, so are they imagining, how do they imagine they're going to conquer Taiwan? You know, some years ago, they got really into studying uh, the Normandy invasions. Uh, you know, the problem with the Normandy invasions is Taiwan is harder by a lot. So, you know, if you're like looking at, looking at Normandy and then you go look at Taiwan, you're going, wow, that's, that doesn't tell me a thing I want to hear. Uh, so everyone, you know, in most militaries, because we're people, engage in magical thinking. Putin, right? He goes into Ukraine and he had an understanding of what was going to happen. We had an understanding of what was going to happen. We were all kind of wrong. The Ukrainians got a vote. Their vote turned out to be quite important. And then the situation began to change rapidly. You know, so if you're mainland China and you're looking at what's going on, you're trying to read America. I think they are constitutionally, they are intellectually unable to understand us because their system is so different than ours. And I don't think we have a good strategy, but I think we know that we don't. I suspect they think they have a good strategy, but they're wrong. But that doesn't mean you won't get a war. And that doesn't. And so when people talk about deterring China, it's very hard to deter someone when you don't know what their values are. You know, you don't know what they see when you say something. Uh, I would like to know what they're reading. I really would. I'd like to know what they're teaching their uh, officers. And I would like it to be read by people who know enough about Chinese history to know what they're not reading and which battles they're choosing, what their exemplars are. I presume their goal is not to have a climactic battle over Taiwan. What do they want? Do they want, you know, we keep talking about this thing, like they want to win without fighting. What the hell does that mean? It's like, well, it doesn't mean without fighting. It means that I want to set things up so that by the time we move, you don't actually shoot back because it's all over. I'd like to end on uh, this question. Uh, Peter, I think you're one of the few people who've read Swinza's Art of War in the classical Chinese. 
Mm. Um, I don't even think there are that many people, and I could be wrong, so feel free to correct me, but I don't think there are even that many people in China that read Sun Tzu's like, Art of War in the classical Chinese version of it. Uh, are there any differences in meaning when looking at it from the classical Chinese version versus the modern you know, Mandarin translation? Um, do you see any common misconceptions of Sun Tzu or the like understanding of Sun Tzu because mm. of that mistranslation um, from like the PLA community? Uh, if there are any, can you give us a few examples? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, actually you raise a really good question there. So um, if you do classical Chinese, Sun Tzu is not particularly hard. Translation makes it hard, to translate is hard, but to understand what's going on is is not it's not particularly challenging classical Chinese. Now, it, you're already, in, it's a little bit back to our earlier thing, you're already in a war, you know, what do you do? It's like, well, you're already in classical Chinese, which is really hard. But in classical Chinese, it's not nearly uh, uh, as hard. And I won't say how many people, you know, hundreds, a few thousand in the world have actually read it. I, I presume most modern Chinese people, people in China just read a translation, uh, a modern Chinese translation. I would love to have the PLA's interpretation of Swinza. And Mark will be able to speak to that, I think, uh, and that article he sent me. And it's back to that same thing, which is there is not a correct interpretation. There are stronger and weaker interpretations. And among the stronger interpretations, you could still disagree. So uh, like, let's take the base, the mo one of the most important terms is uh, Zheng and Qi. So Zheng, which is orthodox or conventional, and Qi, which is uh, irregular or unorthodox. And this is the, the two poles that Suenza sort of introduces. And he basically says, you know, you sort of set things up with Zheng, but you win with Qi. And this is sort of an infinite set of variations, right? Um, which is, if you do something once, maybe that's extraordinary. If you do it three times, then it becomes ordinary. And if you shift back, uh, so again, to get back to the martial arts analogy, you know, you're always taught like, if you're throwing, if you're trying to hit someone, right? You try the same technique. So you train your opponent, you know, I'm gonna throw this punch and then you throw the other one, right? So you do it one, two, three, and then the new one, okay. So I, I look at Qi and say, you can interpret that. The translation is very hard because the English implications, one, one of the biggest problems we have with Chinese English translations of Suenza is that most translators have different ideas about the English meaning of the terms they're using. So when you and I say strategy and tactics, we are deeply aware that these are two very different things. If you talk to your man on the street about strategy and tactics, they often think they're the same thing. Um, how do I translate a text from classical Chinese? The terms are not equivalent into terms that you understand technically that someone who's not in the military may not understand. Uh, so translation is lots of fun. It's my favorite thing, but it's really hard because ultimately you're never, it's always, it's always imperfect. And you have a text that doesn't have one meaning. So what we would, what I would like to know is how does the PLA understand the text? And then is that text influential? But those are two very, the, the first part's easy. Because you, if you can find the right texts, 
and I don't know whether that's classified or, you know, whatever. If it's classified, obviously I'm not going to see it. But if it's if if it's open source, then you can look at it and say, okay, so this is what they think it means. Uh, you know, my argument in the book was that the big mistake we make is we are substituting reading Swinza for understanding the Chinese military, what they really think. And our reading of Swinza is little heart, not Swinza. And it's not the PLA's reading of it. All right, Peter, I think that's a great spot to conclude today's interview. Um, it's going to set us up real nice for the interview with Mark when we talk more about how the PLA is reading Sunzi. This concludes our episode on Swinza, untangling common misconceptions within our Western understanding. Join us next time for part two of our deep dive into Swinza. We'll be interviewing Professor Mark Metcalf from the University of Virginia on how the People's Liberation Army interprets and utilizes teachings from the Swinza. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Vanderbilt University, Princeton, West Point, or the Army Foundry platform. Attached to the show notes are the transcript for this episode, as well as a list of definitions for terms. Since there are quite a few Mandarin terms this time around, we've made sure that the character and pinyin versions are also there for the super nerds out there. If you have questions, comments, and most importantly, suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, please drop us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Vu Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.